I'm Lindsay Claiborne. And I'm Mumu Shu, and you are listening to Beyond the Microscope. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Microscope. Today's guest is Abby Olina. She is a science writer. Abby, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So when I say science writer, that means um, everything and nothing. (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about what that (laughs) means to you and what you actually do? Yeah, so my day-to-day is a lot of writing about science that other people have done for audiences that are less technical than other scientists. Do you have a particular category, or is it all science? Is it just biology? Is it just chemistry? Do you, do you focus on anything in particular? I mostly write about life science. Is that because it's your favorite topic? Is that what? How, why, why life science? So I have a PhD in biological sciences. So when I made the transition from working at the bench to writing about science, I stuck with things that were a little bit more familiar, things that I knew a little bit about already. So how did you make that transition? It was sort of a tough transition, I think. If you're in academia, which lots of people are and are very happy there, it's hard if you're not happy. And when I went to grad school, I thought that I would be, I thought that I would get my PhD and then end up being a professor at a small liberal arts college because I went to a small liberal arts college and I loved it. And then... As I sort of went through grad school and realized that that maybe wasn't the best fit for me, I sort of was casting around for other things to do with this extensive training that I had. And I realized that I really loved talking about science and that I was decent at writing about it. And so, <laughs> sorry, you're saying I, decent? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I, it's funny. I don't think that, yeah, I don't think that I have anything special. I don't think I'm an amazing writer. Um, but... What I figured out is that people are happily making jobs out of writing about and talking about science. And so I thought, well, I'll give that a try. And I got really great advice from a career counselor at a meeting that I went to. And he said, you know, I don't think you need another degree because I was sort of considering, should I get a science communication certificate or should I get a master's degree in science journalism? And he said, no, I think you just need to start walking the path and see how it goes. So it sounds very philosophical. Start walking the path. Yeah, right. The path will appear, right? You make the path by walking. So I joined the National Association of Science Writers, which you can do as a student really cheaply. And I took a course. I was still in grad school at Vanderbilt in Nashville. And I took a course in science writing. And then I also applied for the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship, which is this awesome program through the American Association for the advancement of science that puts science students, so graduate students, undergrads, medical students, in a media outlet for 10 weeks during the summer to basically just be reporters and write about science or produce science radio or science multimedia. And so I did that for 10 weeks in the summer of 2013 at the Chicago Tribune. And that was the turning point for me. Once I had that on my resume, other people were willing to give me a shot as a writer. And from there, I've had a number of other science communication experiences, but I just recently came back to freelancing, which is what I'm doing now. Mumu and I joke about this all the time, about me being the, the journalist of the two of us, that, that I often act as her translator. 
Did you mm-hmm. do that or sort of act that way without realizing it before you decided you wanted to write? Or just did you come to that after being like, I want to write about science. Okay, oh, I got to translate people. I think that I always was more on the translating side. I... I mean, to be honest, I was not a great scientist because I wasn't that into it. (laughs) So, and it always felt like really to be successful in academic science, it felt like I needed to be more dedicated to the science that I was doing. But I was much more interested in things like Journal Club, where I got to go and learn about science that other people were doing and talk about it with folks sort of at a less technical level. And so I think that I was, I think that I was doing that already. And I think that's one reason why it was a pretty good fit when I started to make the transition. And so when you made the transition, or I guess, can you talk a little bit about your experience um, writing at the Chicago Tribune? Yeah, so it was a once in a lifetime kind of opportunity. You know, you walk into the Tribune building on Michigan Avenue and you take the elevator up, and it's this newsroom that looks like probably not that different from what it did in the 60s, like newsrooms, newspaper newsrooms that you've seen on movies. And I was right next to this guy, this amazing you know, Pulitzer Prize-nominated journalist who had been – he had written all these amazing things about problems with the death penalty, and – Somebody had just been released from death row basically because of what he wrote. I mean, it was this really amazing, very live atmosphere. And at the same time, it was also really tough because print journalism is not doing well, and it wasn't then either. So it was this really interesting balance of people doing amazing work and really feeling proud of their work. And then also having a lot of anxiety about what is the future of our livelihood. Um, And, you know, in the midst of that, here's me who has been pipetting things and pushing around zebrafish embryos for the previous five years and has really no idea what I'm doing. So it was amazing in that I got really good mentorship and wrote some awesome stories, but it was also a little bit overwhelming. And so what kind of stories were you writing? Mostly Chicago-focused stories that were science-adjacent. So my favorite story that I wrote while I was there was a longer piece about what the science says about placenta encapsulation and consumption. So have you guys heard about this? Well, I I have not, so... A lot of women, after they have a baby, can give their placenta to a placenta encapsulator, and that person dries it out in a food dehydrator, and then grinds it up and puts it in little capsules so that they can take it like vitamins. Wait, what? Yes. Hold you on. Heard what? Of no. Yeah. So what? the theory behind it is that it helps with things like if you've had blood loss in the course of giving birth or the hormonal shifts that come from having had a placenta and a baby in your body and no longer having those things. The idea is that it's supposed to smooth all those things out. And most mammals eat their placenta, though, you know, mice are clearly not dehydrating and encapsulating them. They're just eating them. So it was really interesting because there hasn't been much science. It's hard to do double-blind, placebo-controlled placenta consumption studies 
the I mean, the ethics around that and getting people's consent is really tricky. And so there haven't been many studies, if any. But I got to talk to some scientists who looked at it from the animal perspective. I got to talk to some scientists who were interested in studying this in humans and whether it actually made a difference in these sort of anecdotally reported ways that people are, you know, people report benefits and that's why they do it. That's why other people do it. But it's not clear. The science really isn't clear about whether it's beneficial or even harmful. Um, you mentioned in passing, and I know I know you've sort of happily moved on from, from bench science, but something about zebrafish? Yes. So can, can you tell us a little bit about what you were studying and, and what that research was? Yes. So I studied small RNAs, microRNAs, and how they influence retinal development in the zebrafish. That was my PhD thesis. Okay, what does that yeah. mean? Can you tell us what that means? <laughs> so there are these little RNAs, so little nucleic acids, that can uh, turn on or turn off genes that make proteins. So I found a particular one of these little tiny pieces of RNA that was having an influence on a protein that is involved in making zebrafish eyeballs, basically. That's crazy. <laughs> it's so it's amazing that you can like tailor all that stuff down to such small little things. This is just about eyeballs. That's all we're talking about. Yeah, that that was basically it. What did you do after that fellowship was over? After that fellowship was over, I was still writing my dissertation, but we moved here. My husband is also a scientist and he was starting a postdoc at UNC Chapel Hill. So we moved to North Carolina and I was writing my dissertation and also I took um, also I took a virtual internship for a magazine called The Scientist, which also has an online news side. And I was there writing intern for six months, which was another amazing experience. I got tons of clips. It was really interesting because it's a virtual newsroom, so I was able to work from my home, but still we had editorial meetings on Skype and I got to work with a lot of different editors and write for the internet and a magazine, both of which I hadn't done before. And then after that, I finished up my dissertation and defended my PhD six or I finished up my dissertation and defended it successfully. And then I took a non-traditional postdoc at Duke university. So that was August of 2014 and what I was doing there was helping teach and develop and evaluate science communication courses and workshops for scientists. So graduate students, postdocs, and faculty at Duke. I would, I know I sort of asked you this, but like, is there a certain topic that you've fallen into either researching or writing about that just captures your imagination? Is, or, do you, or are you more like a generalist in the sense that like all of this is so cool and I want to write about it all? Yeah, I love everything that I write about. Every time I write about something new, I think that it's amazing. So I just wrote a story this week that's about how – so it was a study in mice. But basically what they showed is that some mouse moms – groom and lick and nurse their pups a lot and some don't and that's just natural variation and there are reasons for that that may be related to evolution or whatever but there's a natural difference there and what these scientists showed is that 
the mice, the mouse pups whose moms are less attentive, so do less of that caretaking behavior with them, have different genomes than the ones who get a lot of care from their moms. So their genome structure is different. So the idea that something that you experience, you know, when you're really little can change the structure of your DNA, and this is actually in the brain, they were looking specific in a specific part of the brain, was totally fascinating to me. So that's what I like this week, but... It changes everything. <laughs> it changes, it changes. Yeah, it changes all the time. Interesting. Um, so when you... So you mentioned that you're, you, as a postdoc at Duke, you were helping, was it develop courses mm-hmm. on science communication? Um, what was the, what was the hardest part about that or were they most interesting or, or can you sort of talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, I loved, I love teaching scientists science communication because I think it's so helpful and important and most of the people who ended up in our courses or in our workshops there were completely convinced that they needed it. So they were these wonderful, eager students and really wanted to learn, you know, how do I translate my science like you talked about earlier? Or how do I write this letter to this funding organization who's not used to hearing from scientists so that I can get my research funded because it's really important to me. And I, I mean, it was just a really amazing sort of intersection of the other things that I'd done. So I had seen things from the science perspective, having been a scientist, having been a graduate student, and then I'd seen things kind of from the other side. So telling the science stories, you know, in a more public facing way. And it felt like I was helping scientists to bridge that gap, which was really awesome. What's your having a whole bunch of willing students is a, is a luxury, I think sometimes. But it like, is. How, what's it? Yep. <laughs> how do you reach the next the next tier down? The ones that are like, yeah, I'm, I should probably know that, but I don't. I, have, I don't have time for that. Like, what's the what's the advice for for anybody, maybe Mumu, that like to get the next level of, of scientists to say, yeah, I do need to be able to communicate this. So the people who don't buy in are tricky. I think if you can get them in a room and record them talking about their science and then play it back to them, that usually hits home because people who've been studying science for as long as most scientists in academia have don't even realize how in the weeds they get so fast. And so Sometimes all you need is a little bit of self-awareness to kind of bring that in. The other thing that really helps are peer examples. So people who are communicating science on social media or have interacted with policymakers and felt that that's been successful, having them sort of testify to how that's been to people who are reluctant is another really good way to do it. And have you noticed, um, I guess, certain common pratfalls or, or mistakes that, that students will uh, sort of commit or have? Yeah, so I think the most common misconception about science communication and about public understanding of science in general is that people think that if the public only heard more science, then they would like it and understand it and want to fund it and so on. But... 
that's something that we know from social scientists who study the science of science communication. So we're getting kind of meta here. But the idea is not that, you know, the public is this empty vessel that we just need to fill with science and then they'll love it. The idea is the public has all these demands on their attention and all these demands on their time. And so in order to get them to care about what you're doing, you have to convince them. And there are ways, there are lots of ways to do that. So telling stories is one way, making personal connections is another way. Sometimes really cool science can, like things about dinosaurs or outer space does that pretty well on its own. But this idea that if we just gave people more information, they would care more about it is completely false. Yeah, you need context and you need relevancy, right? I mean, not yes. only do you need to like know the facts, we need to know why you should care. Absolutely. I feel like I do that every day. Um, <laughs> welcome to my world. Um, is there um, something that's, that's surprised you about sort of being in the in the communication sphere of the science world is there something you didn't expect when you when you transitioned over I love how friendly it is I feel like you know science itself can be pretty competitive and I was lucky at Vanderbilt it's a really supportive place to be a graduate student and so I didn't experience I think sort of the cutthroat side of science that many people do I didn't experience a lot of discrimination as a woman which I think many people do and science communication, that world is just so amazing and so welcoming. And you have people making it work for them in a lot of different kinds of ways. So you have people writing full-time. You have people writing part-time. You have people producing audio part-time and writing and also teaching workshops. And so there are lots of models for being successful. And at the same time, people are welcoming you in, willing to talk to you about their path, willing to share what they did that worked well or didn't work when they were starting out. And so I'm maybe not surprised that it's friendly, but I've been delighted that it is. So where do you, so you said right now you're freelancing. Mm -hmm. um, what's the, if you had, you know, uh, your wish granted about what you wanted to do, uh, sort of your dream job, yeah. um, what would you want to do? I love this question. <laughs> Everything, so, all at once. Yes. Yeah, so my dream job would be a combination of writing, like what I'm doing now, and then also giving workshops all over to all different kinds of scientists about how to communicate their science, how to, you know, tell the stories of what they're doing in ways that help them connect with people beyond academia or beyond science. And I get to do some of that now. I'm really lucky in that I get to give some workshops and I get to do a lot of writing. I think eventually I would like to do much more of the workshop piece, but I'm open to wherever that takes me. So I have a question about your thoughts on social media. And mm. um, I know, you know, there's the SciComm hashtag, which is pretty popular. And mm -hmm. Science has its own sort of world on Twitter and its own, you know, all sort of little pockets of things. How do you feel like social media has fit into either helping or harming the, the sort of science information world? 
I think for the most part, social media can be a really great positive tool to share science with audiences that you might not reach otherwise and to connect with other people doing what you're doing, whether that's other people that are scientists studying what you're studying or something adjacent or science communicators. Like part of that community that I was talking about that's so friendly is on Twitter and, you know, connecting via social media at meetings and things like that. I do think, and this is not just science Twitter, but the internet in general can be the wild, wild west. And so it's a scary place for people sort of starting out with that. And I feel like things can sort of go off the rails really fast. And one way to kind of mitigate those problems is to build an authentic network there. So to connect with people you've met in real life, to really have real conversations as much as it's possible on the internet and to support people and speak up when something happens that, you know, you don't agree with. Do you have a favorite uh, science communicator? Ooh, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. You can have more than one. Yeah. You can have more than one, yes. And they don't have to be currently. They could be re- retired. <laughs> now we're just like, opening. Who's your favorite person? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, who do you want to have lunch, <laughs> a dinner with? Right? So Christy Ashwanden is really amazing. She's She was a freelance writer. Now she writes mostly for 538. Um, which is, do you guys know 538? Oh, yes. It's, yeah, yeah, yes. So, and she is heading up the science section. Virginia Hughes, who heads up um, the science desk at BuzzFeed News, I think, is also amazing. There are just a lot of great folks out there talking about and doing science. SciComm, too. Well, okay, so one more question before. I, this is a little bit scattered. We're kind of going all over the place. <laughs> but... Um, what, how do you come up with story ideas or do you, do you just kind of uh, browse journals or, or how does that, how does that work? So most of the freelancing that I do is for the scientist. And I actually have, rather than being just a freelancer that's pitching all the time, I have a contract with a scientist where I write for them a certain number of stories a month. And most of those are assigned. So my editor finds them and sends them to me. So I'm not having to look for story ideas like that quite as frequently as other freelancers. In that way, I mean, honestly, I'm pretty spoiled that I don't have to. But I um, I also do, you know, I have some other freelance clients. And one of them is a blog that's about uh, pregnancy and parenting. And I and sort of from the science and evidence viewpoint. And so I think of a lot of my own ideas for that. And most of it is just, you know, stuff that I'm interested in or, you know, that I had questions when I was pregnant. I have a two-year-old, so that's not that far. That wasn't that long ago. I also teach prenatal yoga. So sometimes things come up in there that then I'll write about for that blog. A running list in your pocket, right? Yeah, totally. On my phone, actually. So literally <laughs> on my po- in my pocket. All right. Well, then, Abby, thanks so much for uh, joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, you're still here. 
Thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. Help other people find this podcast by giving us a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Scope Podcast. Our theme music was composed by The Copy Cuts. <laughs>